Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Hello, my name is Dustin Heiss, and if you are able, could you please stand for today's reading? Today I will be reading Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Bond Servants and Masters. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye servants, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anybody does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. May God bless this reading. You may be seated. Thank you. We're going through the uh, book of Ephesians, and um, the way the book works is we, we've been asking this question about what it means to be uh, involved in the church. What is, who is the church, and, and what are they about? And the book really takes a turn in chapter 5 and talks uh, really extensively as almost commentary on this phrase that Paul says, uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I think what is uh, practical and so helpful as we're learning about uh, who the church is, is that to be full of the Holy Spirit, in the, in especially in the view of Ephesians, is not a, a group of people that are just in a worship service engaged in music. Or, or, or intense Bible study, but the picture actually of people full of the Holy Spirit that Paul wants to give us are these very actually mundane life things, like people who are thankful, engaged in healthy marriages. And last week we looked at uh, engaged in healthy, uh, redemptive parent-child relationships. And in this week he'll t- apply it in another way, specifically to how we spend almost all of our week in work. Now, when you read this text, uh, we just read the ESV uh, that uses the word bondservants and masters, but almost all translations, uh, especially the NIV, that's a very common one today, will use the word slaves. And every time you read this passage, uh, almost immediately what strikes us, especially in this culture, is how in the world can Paul bring up the idea of slaves and masters and not say anything condemning about the ethical nature of such a practice. And actually, one of the terrible things that's, been hap- that's ever happened in the history of the church are people who have used this text to justify the evil nature of slavery. But if, if you do any sort of quick search uh, on the New Testament, uh, it's not very hard to determine that the Bible unequivocally condemns slavery. Uh, there, there's several times in Paul's writings where he just says, uh, no matter who you are, whether you are slave or free, or you're male or female, you are all one in Christ. That is, the identity of who God has declared us to be in Jesus trumps every identity that we could grasp and and create in this world. Uh, There's another letter that we rarely read, the book of Philemon, which is all about reconciliation between a master and a slave. And one of the profound things written in that book is that Onesimus, the runaway slave, is to be received, quote, as a brother. So there's absolutely no doctrine you could ever withdraw from the New Testament that says the Bible would condone any idea 
of owning another human being and enslaving them. So what in the world is Paul doing here in this text? Well, what's helpful to know is that this idea that he's entering into, slaves and masters, is both like and unlike something that we've experienced in this culture. Uh, it, It is unlike what we've experienced and what we understand slavery to be. Because when Paul talks about slavery, it's, it's actually radically different from what we know as the African slave trade and American slavery that we held here. Slavery in that culture uh, happened uh, to people who were educated. Uh, it was not dependent upon race. Uh, it was a temporary thing. Um, so Felix uh, was a governor in Rome uh, who Paul appeared before in Acts 26. He was a former slave had spent part of his life as a slave, got out of that debt, had moved himself up in the Roman Empire all the way to become a governor. Uh, It it, it had a variety of jobs. Uh, You could be a slave as a doctor. You could be a slave as a lawyer. You could be a slave as an educator. It depended on lots of different reasons that were hardly like anything that we know about in the history of American slavery. So it was, it was not like that at all, but it was also actually something like very much that you and I know, and that's the, the labor force. See, getting into slavery, there were lots of economic reasons why you did or didn't belong to somebody. There were lots of variety to this, and there were some situations that were great and some that were actually terrible. And what Paul is actually trying to do is to undermine the idea of slavery, not overhaul it, by giving us some radical principles that actually apply to our understanding of work. One commentator put it this way. He said, the gospel began at once to to undermine the idea of slavery with its mighty principles of the equality of all souls and the mystery and dignity of manhood and the equal work of redeeming love wrought for all souls by the supreme master. But its plan was not to batter, but to undermine. So while the gospel in one respect left slavery alone, it utterly doomed it in another. And what Paul is going to do for us this morning is give us a radical view of work that will apply to our lives today and also on a macro level make slavery absolutely impossible to ever hold for something that God would want. So let's look at this idea of work that Paul wants to give us from this text under four headings. One, he's going to give us a new understanding of work. Two, a new reason for work. Three, uh, a new way into work. And four, a lasting power for work. So first, Paul gives us a new understanding of work. He says this in verse 7, which is probably the key text for the entire uh, section. Render a service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So he says, whatever you're doing in work, work as to the Lord. The NIV would say it this way, work as if you were serving the Lord. And right away what we're learning here is that Paul is telling us that all work matters. And all work is a possibility for you to serve God. Which is a radical statement in that culture because in the ancient Greek world, work was thought to be a curse. Um, the, the ancient Greek myth of um, uh, Zeus and Pandora, you know the phrase Pandora's box? Where that came from was uh, the, the Greek god Zeus gave Pandora a gift, a box, and told her not to open it. And when she opened it, out came death, sickness, hatred, 
and work. And that's how the Greeks understood the idea of your job, that it was just something as horrible as death and sickness that you had to endure in this life. And Paul comes in right away and says, no, 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 no. This is something that is beautiful in a way to serve God. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, it begins this way, the earth was formless and void. Tohu and bohu are the Hebrew words used to say it was absolutely distorted. It was a mess. And what you see happen throughout the first chapter is the living God move in and work to take formless things and to make them ordered things, to make uncreated things and make them created and beautiful. And then when He creates Adam, He puts him in the garden. And the first thing He does is He says, tend to this garden. He gives him a job. And what's absolutely important for us to understand is that happens before the fall, which means the giving of work to Adam is not something that's a result of sin and rebellion and pain in this world that we have to do because the world is not good. It was something given at the very beginning to say, this is how I want you to enjoy my world, by having a job. And you know, the job he gives to Adam is not, Adam, now that I've created you, and I want you to do something that's glorifying and happy for me. I want you to go out and write hymns. I want you to go preach sermons and start Bible studies. He's, no. I just want you to tend this garden. The work that he gives him is very practical. And one of the mistakes that we make in the church that we've done for years is we have taken work at times and make it a huge divide between what is secular and what is sacred. That is, there are a lot of people that would look at my job and say, well, you're doing the Lord's work, and I'm doing just work. Martin Luther uh, hated that idea in the church and uh, aggressively went after all, all with a lot of his writings and developed this doctrine that we now know as the priesthood of all believers. And what he taught is that anybody who is in Christ is representing who God is to the world. And one of the most profound ways that we do it is through our work. So Luther did this. Uh, in his work on the Psalms, he's got a quote where he's talking about Psalm 145, 15. The Psalm says this, the eyes of all who look to you, you give them food in due season. So Luther says this, okay, the Psalm says that the world looks to God and God feeds the world. Now, how does God feed the world? Because unless you've experienced something unlike I have, uh, it's not falling out of the sky, and it's not magically appearing there on the desk or on the, in the refrigerator. How it works is people grow it. People tend to it. People make it. People deliver it. People sell it. And Luther says, here's how God feeds the world, through us. Here's how God educates the world, through us. Here's how God takes care of the world through our doctors, through our educators, through our government officials. And Luther says, look, God is working in the world through all of our works, which means that when you're doing those kind of jobs, you're doing the Lord's work. And if you don't understand work to be this way, then you will inevitably have to make work an idol. That is, you will have to make work a part of your identity that tells you who you are and what your purpose is in this world, and that will make work an enormous burden. But what God wants to do 
that Paul's trying to teach us here is that he wants to give us a view of work that says, look, obviously I created the world. I could do all of this, but I want you to participate with this. I remember when, when Becky turned 40, uh, we threw our big uh, party with a ton of our friends and, and, and uh, neighbors in our backyard. We had like 100 people back there and a taco truck and all sorts of things. And, um, you know, you're setting up lights and tables and it's mom's birthday, so all the kids are like, you know, can I help do this? And if you've ever been in that situation, you're like, you're, you're literally just getting in the way and making this harder. But then I realized this is their mother. They, they want to participate. They want to help. And so it was fun to help them get, give them jobs and give them tasks to do. Now, I absolutely could have done the whole thing myself. It would have been more functional probably to do it that way. But there was a joy to involve them and give them. And that's how God is working through your job. It's a joy to give you a role that's meaningful and redemptive and healing for this world. And that's the new understanding that Paul gives us when he says, do your work as unto the Lord. Secondly, he gives you a new reason for your work. Because when you get into work, the tendency that you have, especially if you're a Christian, is to almost immediately, in this place, no other more than any other place in our life, to separate your faith from your work. Uh, Apple TV right now has a TV show that um, they've been advertising and, and, and doing for the last couple of months called Severance. And it's not severance as in you get fired and you get a package uh, that pays you uh, for a new time in life. Severance in that show, what it is, is, is it's a surgical uh, thing. It's an optional surgery for people who want to have their personal life removed the moment they step into their job. And the moment they leave their job to have no memory of their job when they go back into their personal life. I mean, it's a wild TV show, but you know what's wild about it is how many of us do that every day anyway, and just never connect the two. And the reason is because we often don't ask the question about who do you actually work for? Verse 6, Paul says this. He says, not work, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He says, don't work for eye service or as a people pleaser. This one Greek word, ophthalmodia, it literally means to be an eye pleaser, to, to provide a service performed uh, to attract attention. And what he's saying is, is you know, when you've got to work, there's two ways to do this. One is to work to uh, get attention. The other is to work because you have attention. One is begging for the world to look at you, to award you, to crown you, to adore you, to praise you for your work. The other is to go into your job knowing you already have those things in God through Christ. And if you work for the world, if you work to I please, a couple of things will happen for your job always. One, you'll have inconsistent habits. You will always be pendulating between overworking and underworking. Because if you work for the world, then you'll, you'll be tempted to only want to work when you get attention for it. Or what you'll do is you'll be so obsessed with worldly attention, you'll never be able to turn it off. And you'll always, always, always be working and going back and forth between that. 
you'll also be bored quickly. If you work for the world and your job is not something uh, that you ever thought you'd be doing, it will be very easy for you to become very bored and think what you're doing is like, you know, the, the myth of Sisyphus, where you're just rolling the boulder up the hill every day, only to, for, to get almost to the top and come back down and then repeat it every day. If you work for the world, you'll also, you'll get full of envy very quick. You'll think everybody has a better job, everybody's got a better situation than me. If only I could get that job, if only I could get that situation, then I'd be content, then I wouldn't worry about money, then I wouldn't worry about what other people think about me, then I wouldn't worry, and then I'd want to come to work if I could just have that job. You'll also be empty and lost with your failures. Uh, Rhonda Rousey uh, was the best female MMA fighter. I mean, she just didn't even have a competition for the first like 40-something fights. Uh, finally, somebody beat her. She was, she was something like 47-1. and one. And when she was interviewed afterwards, she didn't go, I need to rethink my technique. I've got to learn. I've got to train harder. She said, I don't know who I am anymore. And she said, I, I think I, I don't want to live anymore. That it, if you live for the world's attention and your job no longer can give you that, there's no you left. But Paul says that in verse 5, he says, but when you work, if you're a Christian, work as you would for Christ. Think who he is saying this to. This is an astonishing statement. He's saying this to slaves who would have had the most boring, mundane, meaningless jobs in the Roman society. And he is saying, work as if Jesus is your boss, as if the Lord is watching all of the time. Work for His attention. Work for, work for His glory. Work out of His love. And if you do that, you know what that means? It, you will go to work and have approval even if you never get approval at work. If you, de- if you deserve a promotion, you deserve an accommodation, and they always overlook you, or someone parasitically kind of goes in your place and steals that from you, Look, if you're working for the Lord, you, you, know, you, you have an, an approval and attention that nothing in your job can ever give you. It sets you free from the burden of missing out and thinking you're falling behind. If you work for the Lord, you will be willing to sacrifice and lose at work, even for the better of the company. You will not worry about sacrificing things that don't even benefit you. If you work for the Lord, you'll you'll have a joy and a meaning to your work every day that you have no idea how that will actually heal and redeem this world. One of the um, commentators who I've read and uh, gleaned so much from on this study in Ephesians is this Scottish minister, Sinclair Ferguson, who has uh, written dozens and dozens of books that have helped the church for actually a long time. And Ferguson says, here's how he became a Christian. When he was a younger man, he was at a church, and a man was telling a story 
about how he became a believer. And that man became a believer because he had had this job in World War II where he was in this huge typing room. You know, they just had these you know, rooms with hundreds of people who were just typing memos all day long for the government. And it, it, I mean, it just had to be one of the most boring, mundane uh, jobs that feel like it's got no end because all you do is just sit in this room and just hear that noise over and over and over again. He said, but there was this one elderly woman who everybody knew because the, she was just smiling all the time. She was so encouraging. She was so loving. She was so helpful. If you needed a break, she would take your burden from you. She was always helping people. She was giving people gifts. And somebody finally asked her, how are you so joyful and happy in this horrific vocation that we all are in? And she said, well, because I know my Father is pleased in this. And that led that man to the Lord and then led Sinclair Ferguson to the Lord who has influenced so much of our study and how we're thinking about the Bible right now. Do you know, if you set your mind to work for the Lord, you have no idea what kind of ripple effect that will have on the universe. What Paul is giving you right now is a fascinating new perspective on your work. Thirdly, he gives us a new way to go into work with that perspective. So he says slaves and masters here. Um, but for the sake of uh, just application, let's, let's, let's apply this acutely to our society with employees, employers, because it's the same vocational situation. To slaves and employees, here's what Paul says in verse 5. He says, bondservants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So right away he says, obey. This is the same word we looked at last week that he actually gives to children for parents. It's one Greek word, and it means to put yourself under uh, somebody's teaching, somebody's voice. He says, do this with your master according to the flesh. Now, it's sort of a pun, or sort of wordplay here that Paul is using, because the word for master in the Greek is the Greek word kurios, which would have often used by Paul as Lord and then to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is saying, in this situation, here in this world, here in your life, here in this time, when you go to work, who you work for, that is your Lord. And he's sort of saying, don't ever go into work and look at your boss and say, I answer to nobody but my God. He's saying those are not separate entities. The way you serve me is by looking at your authority at work and saying, I'm here to serve. He says, and do this with fear and trembling. These are two Greek words that are put together so often by Paul, even at times to talk about the nature of what we do with our salvation. He says, but fear is this word uh, that we get uh, the word phobia from, and it, mean, it has a meaning of awe and reverence. It's saying something has a power and authority over me, and the word trembling is a word that uh, conv conveys to have a solemn responsibility. And then he says, and do this with a sincerity of heart. The haplotos is the Greek word. It means a singleness of devotion, to have a singled out heart. It means it's not working just, it's not like I'm working for myself, not for this company. 
It's not partly for you, not partly for my boss, not what's best for me. It means I am fully devoted to be fully here to give whatever I have to make this company better. And and you don't do the bare minimum. You don't do just what's asked of you. You do single devotion. What's the mission? How do we get it done? What does it take? I mean, Paul is essentially saying, at work, freely put yourself under the authority of your boss and have a passionate devotion to their needs and the needs of the workplace. And he says, that's how Christians ought to be at work. And to employers, here's what he says in verse 9, masters or employers do the same to them. That is an astonishing phrase. Because nobody in the ancient Near East would have ever been a master and looked at a slave and thought, you need to be treated the way I want you to treat me. That I need to put your needs up front. That I need to care how this is affecting you. That I need to care what's happening to you. Nobody would have thought that. And he says, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality to him. He says, you both work for the same person, and the ground is level before him. And you come in, and there is nothing that you bring to the table that is more valuable. And you know how you convey that? He says this, stop your threatening. And I'll I'll tell you what Paul is doing here. He's saying there are two ways to motivate people who work for you, if you're a boss or an employer. One is through threat, that you can just say, do you have any idea what I can do to you? Do you have any idea how I can mess with your life? Do you have any idea what I can take away from you? And that will get people to work on time and to do what you want to do. But, But Paul says, when you do that, you are forgetting that the ground is level. And you think there's something more special about you that God has given you, that thinks about you, to have this job, to have this role. And he says, no, 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 it's level. The other way to motivate people in work is not by threatening them, but by modeling before them. When he says, do the same to them, he's saying, you want them to have a single devotion, to have a work ethic that works just as hard when you're not looking as you are looking, that gives all the, uh, the passion and devotion to this company to make it the best, no matter what incentives we're getting, you model that first. I remember uh, when Becky and I moved to Philadelphia about 20 years ago so I could go to grad school there, um, the governor of Pennsylvania was Ed Rendell. And he had been the mayor in Philadelphia, and he won just a landslide election in the state. And he'd been one of the most beloved mayors that Philadelphia had ever had. And it didn't take long to figure out why the city just adored him so much, because the story is that when Ed Rendell became mayor of Philadelphia, what he did for the first month of his job is he spent the first two hours of his workday out on City Hall with a toothbrush scrubbing it and cleaning it and trying to make it a better place. And what he was saying is that, hey, as your mayor, I am not above you. I'll do the most meaningful, small, unnoticed tasks to make this city better. And that's what Paul is getting at. That if you're a Christian and you have any kind of authority at workplace, he says, 
you need to have that kind of perspective on your job. And, and if you do that, you, you know what that will give you? That will give your workplace? I think it will give us a radical accountability that will get rid of toxicity. One of the things that is so toxic in the workplace is, is the abuse and the ability to throw things around and people fear there's no accountability for it. They're just going to get away with it. They can say this, they can do this, and there's nothing to stop them. And Paul is saying, if you know that the ground is level and everybody will answer to the Lord Jesus Christ on their work, there's an accountability there for everybody to know this is not about a ladder that I stand on over you. This is about distinct roles that we both have to make this a better place. And that will give you an incredible humility that can bring unity in your workplace. And that's the new way that, God is, that Paul is calling us into work this morning. He gives us a new understanding of our work, uh, a, a new person to work for, thirdly, a new way into work, but lastly and quickly, a lasting power for work. Here's what he says in verse 6. He says, do not work by the way of eye service as you would be people pleasers. Now, the negative side is he says, look, the way the world works is you go in and you work to the degree that you get attention. He says, the power, though, of, of the ethic and the thing that I'm calling you to do is not to work for the world's attention, but to work as if you have God's attention. Because you, you, you know what's hard about this? And some of you are in this situations that if you, if, you, if you get your knees dirty and you aim for faithfulness and you aim to be a, a great employer, it feels like you're going to run into a wall when, when nobody notices and nobody sees. And what Paul is trying to communicate to you is, listen, if you work your whole life in faithfulness, in devotion, and in kindness for your company, and they never, ever reward you for it, listen, God sees. It's a place in Hebrews 6 where the author says this, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. Look, if you know that God sees, that means there is no mundane moment, there is no mundane task, and there is nothing that you do that will not be rewarded. And you know how you know that? It's because the cross tells you that God's face is on you. And it is not a face of shame. It is a face of love. R.C. Sproul, uh, the former theologian, uh, tells a story about uh, Wayne Alderson, who did a lot of work on labor relations and management. And he was the one who coined this phrase, you may have heard in the workplace, called dropping the head. He didn't understand what that phrase meant. Uh, and how important that was for leaders and managers until he, uh, he saw this one time in a hospital. He said he was waiting on somebody, and he saw this uh, janitor uh, walking down the hallway, kind of smiling at people, doing his great work. And this nurse comes out of um, a room, and she had been smiling and saying hi to her patient, and she's going to walk down the hall by this janitor. And about three steps before she passes the janitor, she just dropped her head and looked at the floor and kept walking. 
And he noticed immediately that the janitor had a sort of a drain of joy just bleed out from him as that woman looked at, dropped her head and looked at the floor. And he said, this is what Alderson was trying to communicate. When you have that kind of authority at work and you drop your head, what you're sort of doing is saying, you're not worthy for me to look at. The task that you have, it's not worth my attention. It's not worth me pausing and giving you any kind of affection and affirmation for. And whenever you experience that, there is a shame and a mundaneness and an emptiness that just floods your job. And you know what the gospel tells you? Is that the Father will never drop His head to you. That on the cross, when Jesus is standing there and He's saying, Father, Father, and there is no answer, He finally gets His attention because He just says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Father turned His back on Him so that He could look upon you And you have the shining, bright face of the Father that says, you are my beloved child in everything that you're doing. Knowing nobody sees, I see. And it is a part of redeeming and recreating this world. What if you took that into your job? What if you're so full of the Holy Spirit, you showed up and led your company that way? I think we'd begin to experience more of heaven and less of hell here. Let me pray. Father, um, so many of uh, people even here and around us, Lord, they think what we're doing this morning is, is just what religious abstract people do. And tomorrow when we go into work, that's what matters and that's what we need in this world. Father, I pray that, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us and equip us now to take what we know and we've heard here or into our spheres of influence tomorrow and that we would embody what you've given us in Jesus now into our workplace, that we would be better employers and better employees. Lord, doing your work for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.